Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Phoenix and the Ferryman podcast. I'm your host, Krista Fee, and tonight I'm bringing you an amazing guest that I actually met on Facebook, believe it or not, in a PTSD support group, and his name is Jesse Rader, and please give him a warm welcome this evening. Hi, Jesse. Hey. Good to see you. So I like to start these podcasts with something just a little uh, off, offsetting, <laughs> something that just throws you off your game a little bit because we're all a little bit too serious. So we're always talking about trauma and we're always talking about healing and we're talking about these intense journeys. So as I bring you on, I want to ask you just a question and just answer off the cuff. But what is your like greatest guilty pleasure Ooh, mcdonald's french fries <laughs> <laughs> that's an awesome one <laughs> yeah well and yeah i everybody you know we all have to have that little shame shadow of mcdonald's whenever we admit it to a bunch of people but hey it's a multi-billion dollar franchise i'm sure a lot of us are supporting it but oh i love their french fries so. I have heard a lot of people say that they're addictive. <laughs> they must yeah. put something in them. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> All right. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do with the with the military. Well, um, well, my name is Jesse Rader. I, I live in Utah. I've been in the Army Reserve a good part of 17 years now. Um I've deployed to Afghanistan twice. Uh, the first time in 2007, um, 2006 to 2007, uh, I went to the Nangahar province in with the Jalalabad Provincial Reconstruction Team as a civil affairs soldier. Um, I also deployed in two thousand from 2009 to 2010 to Ghazni, um, the Ghazni province, and there I was with the provincial reconstruction team Ghazni doing a lot of work throughout that that province and then I also have deployed with the active duty stateside I worked with first corps in their civil military operations section under the joint chiefs of staff and did all kinds of work through the pacific um, either from complex emergencies to humanitarian assistance type stuff with country teams and different things like that um, and then, you know, for full-time work, I, I write software for the air force for their logistics and maintenance stuff. So it's kind of a weird scatter plot of experiences. <laughs> I also worked in advertising for 13 years, you know, it's good times, I guess. I so you've seen a lot, you've explored a lot of different careers. I have, but what's interesting and is, is in all of these, I've, I've, had to work very closely with people and to kind of look at people subjectively, but to get to know them and kind of understand the way people think and what motivations drive them and so on. So, um, you know, so it's kind of, it's kind of been interesting to have to approach life kind of from that perspective. And you are a family man. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm, I'm married. Um, to my wife, Amber, and I have two kids, um, Leah and Bo. My son is four and my daughter is seven. I love that you guys started a little later. I think it gave you both so much time to, to grow and get to know each other and to build that relationship and that intimacy. 
So tell us a little bit about the early days with your wife. Um, so I, I met my wife after my first tour and I had experienced, um, I had experienced some things during that first tour that kind of, uh, caused me to shut down emotionally. And I guess this kind of aggravated some things that came from my childhood moving around a lot, but, um, a certain experience I had with, uh, involving, you know, a little girl that had been injured by a landmine and I've, you know, it kind of, I wasn't prepared, I guess, to experience that. And to deal with it, I ended up switching off emotionally and it wasn't so easy to switch back on. So I kind of had to start this journey after my first tour of trying to reconnect with feeling at all. I just kept everything at an emotional distance. Um, everything just in my mind was temporary and it wasn't a question of if it was going to be gone, but when. Um, and I ended up getting into a lot of relationships, um, that didn't work out because there was just this emotional distance between me and these, these different women that I was, that I was dating. And I, I had to kind of reconnect with things spiritually. Um, I had to, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but eventually I was able to get back to a place of feeling and I ended up avoiding getting into relationships and different things like that because they were just kind of aggravating some of the issues that I already had anyway. And once I was able to find find my way on that journey back to a place of feeling, um, that was about the time that I met my wife, Amber. And she was just this the type of person that could walk into a room and, you know, people could be completely angry and frustrated and upset. But she just carried this smile and this emotional energy that just lifted the entire room. Like she'd walk in and suddenly everybody like her, her personality was contagious, you know? So if she was happy, everyone around her was happy. And at the same time, if she was upset, everyone around her <laughs> ended up, you know, just getting pulled into the same emotion. It was almost like she overflowed with it and it was kind of filling up my cup too. And, um, and I found that so attractive, especially considering how kind of this void that I seemed to feel in my heart. And, um, and I had made so much progress. It just, I don't know. We ended up, uh, we ended up getting along really well. And, and we decided, we started talking about marriage before my second tour. Um, and I decided to have her kind of wait and see what it was like to be married to somebody who would deploy before she committed to it. And about halfway through, she decided, you know, it's, it's hard. I'm, I miss you. This will never be easy, but, but I can do this. So let's get married. So I went home on Lee on my mid mobilization leave and we ended up getting married and I became that guy that I always made fun of. Um, and then <laughs> it was funny, those early fights that her and I would have over the phone because it was like the, the Roshan mobile stuff. So like we'd be in the middle of a fight and I'd be about to lay down this awesome argument and the phone would cut off and die. <laughs> <laughs> and it would force me to kind of rethink my strategy. And then when we finally were able to reconnect, it was like more apologetic and stuff. There was, there was an interesting lesson to be learned there, I think. But, uh, but yeah, I got home and we started our lives and we kind of struggled with infertility and we were able to have kids and stuff later on, eventually after a lot of work. But we definitely had our struggles with my post-traumatic stress during that, during those times. And I learned quite a bit about almost to the point where we ended up, almost ended up divorced. Um, and I, we went through a lot of counseling and I learned so much from it. And that's probably a lot of what you saw on the Facebook page. You know, the advice that I was giving kind of from the perspective of those struggling with post-traumatic stress, but also encouraging certain things that 
people could do to save their marriages and open those channels of communication to help, you know, sort through all these difficult things. So you notice the statistics. We always talk about statistics, how military personnel are like four times more likely to be divorced than the general population. But you actually saw that you experienced kind of what your guys were going through. What does that look like from your end? Um, you know, when I was deployed, especially the first tour, because that was before, you know, mobile phones that we could just buy off the market were accessible. Plus it was strongly discouraged because they weren't secure. Um, we would go to these MWR tents and we would do like DSN calls back to air force bases that would route us through back to home. Um, and I remember sitting outside of those phones waiting for my turn. And I, I, I kid you not, I would hear five marriages end in the 10, 10 minutes to half an hour that I have to wait for a turn to get on the phone. Cause you can just hear everybody's conversations. And it was, it was difficult and it was, it, it probably stemmed from a variety of things, you know, anywhere from the private that met a stripper, you know, just before they de deployed and they got married and she cleaned out his accounts while he was gone, which, you know, I hate to say was kind of more typical than you'd think uh, <laughs> all the way to, you know, more complex things like, you know, they'd get married. Uh, they'd, he'd bring her to whatever active duty installation he was at totally across the country and then away from her family and then he'd get deployed for a year and she'd be there with no friends and no support group. And, and he's gone and he's, he's doing all these great things. And she just feels like her life is on pause and that apartment starts to feel like a prison cell. And then, you know, depression sets in. And then the source of that depression is, is becomes him. And then there's resentment and anger. And then, you know, uh, she gets a job or something. She finds Mr. There and is going to be there and, leaves him for that guy. You know, I mean, I, that sounds bad, but I think it's just kind of the way people, you know, try to try to deal with things without, without knowing better um, or without having other strategies in place to kind of prevent things from falling apart. If that makes any sense. We're often talking about months and months and months that go by without any, any contact or minimal contact. And it's very difficult and challenging to maintain a relationship, especially if it's a young relationship. And so many of those situations are brand new girlfriend three months in and now we're deployed. So they don't have the time and the strength and that, that communication and that intimacy. They don't have any of the skills in place to handle deployment. Do you feel like there are, do you feel like there are more resources in place now to help both with the, the partners at home and with the deployed spouses in addressing some of those issues? So I know that uh, active duty units have programs. I know I've, my experience is through the army reserve and I know that we have like the family readiness group, which is supposed to, you know, it's just volunteers. Our spouses might volunteer to participate in this, in this group to reach out to the family members of soldiers that are deployed and things like that. It's, it's a very limited program. I, I hate to say, honestly, I feel like it's marginally effective at best. Um, I think really the, what I've seen work the most, um, 
to kind of maintain healthy relationships, even, you know, despite distances is kind of having a strategy in place to do it. So the, the conditions that I noticed over time that worked the absolute best was when the deploying soldier would kind of set up to have his, his significant other go back to her family or her friends to fly back, to move back while he's gone, you know, so that she's with them. She's going on vacation with her family there. She's out feeling like her world is continuing. Like she's still continuing to grow. She's still working on school. It's not like her whole life is on pause and she's left suffocating while, while that person's gone. And then the other, the other thing that I noticed that helps significantly is when both, both people, you know, have that support group, but they also have like a set of values uh, that they hold to that are greater than the two of them, whether that be, you know, religious values or, um, you know, just a, a, a strong set of morals and virtues that they believe are, are required for them to be a good person. Um, you know, whether, wherever that comes from, from their, their, ethnicity from their their family history or whatever if they have that you know something to that kind of sets a precedence for them as being the people that they should be that that tends to last a a long a long way you know if i if i'm for example in dating somebody and it starts to get physical and she says hey you know because of my spiritual beliefs or whatever i don't believe that we should do this before marriage you know, a lot of, for a lot of guys that might be a deterrent, like, oh, she's a prude or whatever. Uh, to me, that just tells me this is somebody I can trust. And that trust, that, um, that courage that she just showed in that situation is absolutely what you want. If you know you're going to be gone for more than a year, you will never have to worry about what a woman like that or a, or a man like that is, is, where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing while you're gone, because you know, this is a set of values that they held on to before they even knew you and that they'll hold on to long after they know you. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's something that you can rely on. And that's just something that I've noticed, you know, in my, in my time, the relationships that seem to work in the military um, amongst many other things have that chemistry, great, a great support base. Um, and then a set of values that are greater, you know, than, than you or, or her. And then that is really comes down to one fundamental thing, trust, trust and courage, because without trust and courage, you can't, you can't develop in those areas of intimacy, like physical intimacy, especially I, I can't imagine anything that requires more trust. I mean, you know, <laughs> women have to, women that are dating any man have to, has to first figure out, is this guy a serial killer or a rapist? You know, like, so you really trust is everything through the dating process and everything, but in establishing, you know, which I think is that, that what requires the most trust is physical intimacy, but also spiritual, intellectual intimacy, cognitive intimacy. And, uh, even even conversational intimacy, which I guess many people would consider chemistry. Um, but just, you know, having that trust to be able to share ideas, to share your most innermost feelings and to know it's not going to be belittled, downplayed, destroyed or what or what have you, that you'll that what you're feeling and what you believe matters and is important and significant, that your dreams matter, that your ambitions matter, that what you feel matters not being made fun of or pushed aside or swept under the rug or, you know, 
disregarded. We all want that. I think women and men, I don't think we're too different. You know, a lot of men are just like, Oh, I just want the, I just want the sex, you know, like I just want to hook up, (laughs) but I, I don't think that's true. I think really subconsciously, you know, it might not be manly to admit it at first. We, we want to be in a relationship where what we feel and what we want matters just as much as women do. We want to feel safe. We want to feel secure in our relationships just as much. Ask any guy sitting on a turret, you know, that has to wonder or not what his girl back home is doing or not doing, or his, his significant other, you know, whether that's another man or whatever, it doesn't matter. But um, you know, the person that they care about, they, they want to be able to trust them. They want to be able to focus on the fight and coming home alive and not have to worry about that. But, you know, it's it's also inappropriate for us to expect from others what we're not willing to give. Because otherwise, all we're doing is, you know, creating premeditated resentments. But sorry, I didn't mean to run off with that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're here for. That's exactly what we want to hear. That's exactly what we're here for. So when you first started dating your wife, did you know you had PTS or were you just struggling with the symptoms of it and you hadn't been diagnosed yet? I knew I was probably a little embarrassed about the idea of calling it post-traumatic stress. Like I noticed a couple of things. The first thing I noticed is when I got back, you know, I, I was hyper-focused on cars around me. Like, you know, did the suspension, was there something heavy in the trunk? Was it pushing down? How many people were in the car? You know, different things like that, because, you know, those were just things that you just had to always look for. And I was like, I really need to let go of this. I'm, I'm home. I'm safe. I don't, it doesn't matter if, you know, not, there's not a car on this road that's going to explode and kill me. Um, I also noticed it when I was following a dump truck and I remember a rock falling out of the dump truck. I could see it bouncing toward my windshield. I knew exactly what was happening. I didn't even care. I hated this car. Like I didn't care about the, the windshield, you know, and it hit and it just made that noise. And I found my body just, uh, go into this fight mode. I think it, I, th- it probably released the, uh, um, the fight or flight. What is that? The your amygdala. That yeah. But what's the, what's the hormone that's released? I guess I, f- I forget. Usually the, the first one, cortisol and adrenaline. Yeah. yeah cortisol and adrenaline. I, I, I felt all of a sudden amped up and I went into this fight mode and I was like, this is so weird. Like I knew I was safe. I knew exactly what was happening, but you know, I reacted to the sound in that way. And I, I thought that was kind of odd. Um, and then I think where it really kind of set in was uh, um, that, that disconnectedness, that, that indifference that I felt with everything around me to the point where I was sitting next to my mother's deathbed after she was, uh, well, she was dying after an eight year battle with cancer. I sat there struggling to feel anything at all anything, even anger would have been something to feel, but I felt nothing. And it was like the most horrible feeling. And I was like, I can't live like this. I can't do this. You know, I, I was burning through relationships because, you know, there was no connection. There was no intimacy because I I couldn't provide it. I felt nothing. And, um, and, you know, for me, that journey kind of started with me being a religious person and wanting to you know, reconnect with spiritual things. So I kind of went through the process of doing that. And there were a lot of concepts, philosophies that were involved in that process that I think transcend even religion that uh, 
kind of have probably a very strong base in in psychology. You'd probably know more about it than me. But, you know, I think a lot of those activities involved in this process of repentance and, you know, trying to get back to a good place where I could be comfortable with the person that I saw in the mirror and be proud of that person again um, and to feel for that person again and to feel for others again. Um, probably those activities involved a lot of things that kept me in the prefrontal cortex and kept me, you know, working toward uh, reconnecting to those and those emotions and having a better way of processing those emotions, a healthier way, instead of just avoidance. So this is a really, really great example of, we're always telling people the brain is, we have neuroplasticity, we have this ability to reprogram your brain. You, even though PTS injuries, especially severe PTS injuries, have the ability to take a lot of the energy and the activity away from the frontal lobe, we can practice rebuilding that. We can practice re-stimulating that. We can practice focusing on emotional regulation and emotional awareness. And you talk a lot about presence, forgiveness, and letting go. And those are really important concepts, no matter whether you put them in a religious concept or, you know, just a just a self-concept, even if you're only letting go of the things that are holding you to your past, that that survivor's guilt or that shame for what you did over there or the person you couldn't save or the whatever it is that has you in that grip of guilt or shame or fear, all of those things, all of that is forgiveness. All of that is letting go. And religion is an excellent way to find that ability to forgive oneself and obviously to forgive others as well. But forgiving oneself in a PTS scenario is almost always one of the major turning points and major keys to healing. Can I, can I add something to that? Absolutely. You mentioned the phrase letting go. Um, And, you know, my immediate thought when you mentioned that was I don't, I don't want to let go. Um, if you don't mind, um, you know, I, I had an opportunity with, with my command. We ended up talking to Medal of Honor recipient Ty Carter. Um, you'll have to look him up to kind of know what his experiences were. But I remember talking to him just kind of on the side a little bit about, you know, his, his views on post-traumatic stress. His first, his first thing was he hated that it was called a disorder. He's like, you know, what I've realized is this is the body's natural tendency to prevent us from doing something stupid again (laughs) that could get us killed, you know, like, and, you know, it was kind of a a comedic way of, of oversimplifying it, but he was in a way he was right. You know, this, this isn't a disorder. This is the body doing what it's supposed to do. Our body and our minds trying to, to self-preserve, trying to keep us, keep us safe and keep us comfortable and keep us in a, in a good place. Um, and I agree with that. And when you, what I'm getting back to this, this concept of letting go is, you know, I, I think, I think of it more in terms of not letting go, but having it change or evolve from something devastating to something meaningful. Um, I don't know if you have ever done any oil painting or anything like that, but when you, when you oil paint, it takes forever for the paint to dry. Paints are exceptionally expensive. So is the canvas. You know, you'll spend hundreds of dollars before you even put a brush to the canvas with paint. 
Um, and when you start build, you have this idea exactly of what you want to paint. You might even sketch it out a little bit and how it's going to be laid out. And then you start painting it and then you screw up. Every, every artist does, except maybe Bob Ross, but I'm sure he screwed up originally <laughs> a few times. Um, but you know, like you, you make a mistake and then you're host because you know, you're, you have only a couple of options. One, you can just trash this canvas and the hundreds of dollars of paint and everything and try to start over on a new canvas and a new couple hundred dollars worth of paint. Or you have to work with the mistake. You work around it. It's going to change. You have to try to mix colors in to get colors a different way. Um, some of the brush strokes are still there. So you start working this mistake into the painting. It changes everything. It changes your layout. It changes your colors. It changes all kinds of things. And then you make another mistake and you just keep working and you keep trying to work with these mistakes until all of a sudden the final product of your painting is nothing like what you set out for it to be, but it's so much more beautiful and so much more amazing. And a lot of us just kind of want to gravitate toward the warm colors, you know, like, oh, I just want the warm colors. In my, I don't want the dark colors or the cool colors or whatever. I mean, those are scary or whatever. I, I mean, really, you know, we, we are the, the construct of, of, of all the colors, all the, the types of brush strokes and techniques and everything. I mean, the real story of a painting is, is only part of what the painting represents and how it connects to people really if you look closely it's the brush strokes and the mistakes and how the mistakes were worked in it's the true story of what makes these paintings great and i i feel like people are often the same way and i look at our mistakes the same way you know we're not we're not our past i mean you know even our nation we our nation isn't doesn't have this perfect history of having never done anything wrong i know a lot of times we try to edit it to be like that but no i mean we we have a past riddled with good things, her heroic acts, and, you know, shameful acts. But they're not who we are. That's still a choice that we have. Um, our mistakes are something that can be great teaching things. Our, they're weaknesses that can become incredible strengths when we turn them into something meaningful, when we convert the emotional energy from those losses and those those embarrassments into learning experiences that we can use to help other people or to help ourselves. You don't want to let go of them. They become treasures at that point because you've turned, you've turned them into silver or gold. And now they're this incredible part of who you are and part of the, the, the story of your struggle and what you've been able to overcome and achieve and what you can help other people do as well, which I'm sure is a lot of why you do what you do because you've probably been through quite a few things in your life. And now you're turning this into this podcast that we all get to enjoy to learn more about ourselves and others. <clears throat> and that's something that wouldn't have existed without the difficulties that I'm sure you've had to overcome in your life as well. Right. Most healers, most people who go into helping professions tend to get there by way of overcoming some kind of, some kind of traumatic history, either that or their parents and their parents and their parents were, <laughs> we like that hereditary thing too. No, I love, I love what you said. And don't get me wrong. When I, when I say letting go, it is literally, that's of course an overgeneralization. But when I say letting go, we're talking about letting go of 
beliefs about experiences that were never true in the first place, our false beliefs and our false impressions mm -hmm. that lead to guilt, shame, and fear that don't have to be there. So that idea of transformation is also true because we're, we're like, oh, we're shining a light or opening a window on an experience to show you the other possible meanings, the other ways that you might want to see that. Or looking back now with the eyes of an adult, what does what happened look like to you? So it's a really complex concept that people, we all have these definitions for all of these words. So when I say forgiveness, sometimes people are like, oh, that's a terrible word. I'm like, why is forgiveness a terrible word? But that's a person's perception that when you say forgiveness, that means that the other person didn't do something wrong, that you have to be okay with it, but they didn't actually, they don't have to be responsible for it. I'm like, where did you learn that? That's not what forgiveness means to me. <laughs> so yeah. it's all of this syntax is, it's so hard to have these conversations and to really try to speak clearly, but I would never want you to let go of your experiences and the learnings that come from those because as you say, that is everything. But you're talking about letting go of its power over you as yes. you gain power over it. That that that's a beautiful concept. So <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that because I definitely learned something. <laughs> it's it's such powerful work. I just didn't want to leave leave that one open ended because oh. it is it is so many layers and so complex, but all of this healing stuff, we always say it's very, very simple, but it's never easy. So there's all these tiny little chunks. There's all these tiny little steps that you can take that you've probably all heard before. You just don't put them into context and you don't realize the power of small things every day. And you're helping to bring that to the forefront that it really is those small things. It's surrounding yourself with people that care for you and that can help you figure out what your goals are, figure out what life looks like and support you in your choices, whether they're functional for you or not. Yeah. And noticing that that's important for both parties in a relationship. So this is amazing, good foundational stuff. Uh, Another topic that I want to talk with you about, because you are so in the relationship part of this, uh, the group that we met on is, I think, probably about three quarters wives that are dealing with husbands that have PTS injuries. Uh, but there's also some, some men in there as well. Uh, and the thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again is this concept of how do I tell, how do I know if what's happening to me in this relationship is related to, to my partner's PTS, or if it is, should I be looking at this as abuse? At what point is this not okay? At what point is it okay as a partner to stand up and say, this is not appropriate, I shouldn't have to be treated like this? When does a partner need to take care of themselves? Um, that's a, a very complicated question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know that abuse can manifest itself in various forms. Um, you know, from psychological, emotional abuse, all the way to physical and sexual abuse. Um, I mean, physical and sexual abuse is quite obvious. Um, I think, 
I think it's very obvious to the victims of it. It's very obvious to the people that love them. Um, that one, that one's kind of a, a, a gimme. And I, I'm, I'm not really a, a certified counselor or anything. This is just my opinion, you know, and this is kind of coming a little bit from me wearing my first sergeant hat. Cause I, you know, that's, I am a first sergeant for an army reserve unit and I do deal with some of these things to, to one extent or another, but it's just my perspective that as long as the abuse is able to continue, the per the abuser seldom, if ever changes, you know, I, I think that they, it, it sounds so horrible in our, in our society to like, Oh, you should turn them in. You know, it's like, Oh no, I, I'm not a snitch, you know, like snitches get stitches or whatever. Um, we have all these little slogans and saying, or what sayings or what have you, but you know, when somebody is, is forced into a position where they have to be held accountable for their actions, that is the one time that they get the choice to either hold themselves accountable for those actions or not to, and to just be punished by the law. I think we all agree on the importance of, of human rights and we are, we should all have a right to live and to live a life free of abuse and a, a life free of fear. Um, you know, and it's, it, it breaks my heart because I'm, I'm a veteran, you know, I mean, we, all of us that put on this uniform, we put this uniform on so that we can fight to defend people, not to make people victims of us. You know, we didn't, we didn't wear this uniform to be the bad guys. We didn't wear this uniform. You know, we wanted to stand between the monsters and, and the meek, you know, the, the ones that struggled to be able to fight for themselves or, or just weren't able to, we wanted to defend our country. So why, why should our families, why should our children be any different? They're not. We put on this uniform to protect them. So why would we become the monsters and hurt them? You know, that's something we have to think about as the as the the veterans. Um, not to bring that war home, <laughs> but to to fight it there and leave it there, and then to come back and try to get the help that we need. But on the other side of it, you know, if for those that are victims of this this type of abuse, get get safe, get away from it. You know, find find a place of safety and depending on the type of abuse, you know, like if if there is physical abuse involved, turn that person in and give them a chance to be connected to the resources. And, you know, I mean, yeah, punishment sucks, but, you know, stupidity should be painful. <laughs> that pain is, is a great teacher when all other teachers have failed. Um, so, you know being held accountable to the law or having to go to jail for a little while or get connected to counselors and, and different things is, is their one chance to atone for what they've done or to own up to what they've done and to possibly get help. And if they don't get help, it's all the more reason why they shouldn't have access to you. Um, so, you know, I feel like getting to a place of safety, getting away from them and finding a way for them to be held accountable for what they've done is the best way to help them. And I know that that's an oversimplified thing because in a lot of these situations, there's a lot of fear involved. If I turn him in, you know, when he gets out of jail, is he going to come for me? Is there going to be a reprisal? Is he going to try to kill me or something like that? I, I, I know that it can be very dangerous. It can be very scary, but again, you know, kind of like we've talked about, make sure you have a good support group, make sure you have, people around you that can help ensure your safety. Uh, there's organizations out there that can help ensure your safety. Um, 
the military provides some resources um, through military one source for both the veterans and members of their family. There's, you know, you can get online and you can find a lot of those. I'm sure a lot of your friends can help you search for these resources. There's, there's homes and shelters and different places you can go to provide you that safety, that security, and that stability while you make that transition out of that abusive relationship into um, a more wholesome relationship or, or whichever relationship you, you want to choose or grow into. Um, when it comes to emotional abuse, that's a very broad topic and it, it follows such a broad spectrum because I think some people are more resilient to it. Uh, some people are more susceptible to it. I don't think gender is, makes a difference in that, in that respect. Um, you know, I've, in many ways <laughs> throughout my life been victim of emotionally manipulative people. I, I, I've experienced gaslighting on both sides. I've done it. I've received it. Um, I've been manipulative. I've been manipulated. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's a, it's a bad place to be. I've been able to overcome a lot of those negative aspects of my character, fortunately. Um, and I continue to, to strive to overcome those negative aspects of my character, but I've, I've also become keenly aware of them. And I know that it's for no two people. Is it the same? I guess it really just comes down to you. If you feel like this is happening to you and you can't feel safe or happy in your relationship, in that case, it's probably something you should strongly consider stepping away from. I guess you don't understand how toxic and dangerous an environment is until you step out of it. But as far as the advice that I give, especially like on this on this Facebook page that I'm in, I'm always going to, because I'm, I'm a third party, I can never understand the full picture or the full scope of anything. I'll always try to provide the resources that will save a marriage or open communication between two people or try to help them build that intimacy. I'll, I'll always default to that um, because I just, you know, I feel like there's so many aspects to what it takes to make the decision to end a marriage um, or a relationship that it's, it's really kind of between those two people. Um, it's a, it's a decision that they have to make either together or individually. There's no possible way I could uh, understand things fully from one pers person's perspective or both people's perspective to feel like I could uh, give them, tell them that it's okay. That's just not my place. I, I don't feel like I, it would ever be my place. It's really between those two people. So I always try to focus on those strategies and those resources that help with communication and relationship building to save marriages before ending them. But I will always stand on the, on the, my belief that when abuse is involved, you've got to get to safety and that person has to be held accountable or they will never change. Um, and it, it's so much better that they be held accountable before it's too late because when it's too late, it's probably going to be too late for you too. Um, so it's something you've got to try to get ahead of and get away from. Sorry, I don't know if that helps. It's, it's no, kind of a perfect. I feel like we end up with two, two problems of stigma. We have the stigma that our PTS sufferers have that they have to deal with that, you know, if I ask for help, I'm weak. If I, if I look for resources or if I admit there's something wrong, then 
I mean, some of the guys have said to me, well, that's a pussy thing to do. But the funny thing is, they think that until they go get help. I've never seen a peer support group ever making fun of anyone for getting help. I've never seen, I've never seen anyone who's gone for help getting made fun of by people who haven't gotten help yet. So the perception is that they're going to be looked down on, but the reality is that they're not looked down on, that people respect that and that people see that as strength. So working on that stigma and breaking that down, that, that strength is seeking help. Strength is becoming a better person. Strength is being strong in who you are and your core values and what matters to you and not letting this, sometimes we call it an injury, not letting this illness, injury, whatever we want to call it, not letting this win, not letting this take over, but keeping that core of who you are as the strongest part of you, that is strength. And then on the other side of it, we have the stigma of partners who are told that if you leave your person who has this horrible thing, it's like leaving someone who has cancer on their deathbed and walking away. Like that you should feel guilty and shamed because you're this horrible person that you didn't just suck it up and, and help them get through it. But people who don't want to get help, people who aren't ready to get help, oftentimes spouses have asked over and over again and said, you know, we have these problems. I need you to be my partner here. I need you to work on this. And they refuse and they, and they go to addiction or they go to abusive behaviors and it escalates and escalates and escalates. But the partner is still left with this feeling that if I leave my person who has this illness, I'm a horrible person. And I think we need to look at that a different way and remind people that there is some choice involved in this, that it is not completely debilitating in in the awareness of what you're doing after the fact you may have moments when you don't know what's happening but when your partner comes to you and says this is what happened they still have time to process they still can choose something different and in most cases other than like really severe cases they are aware of what's happening and what's going on and what they're doing to you so you have to choose what's right for you. You have to choose what's healthy for you, especially if there are children involved. And there's no shame in giving up on your person that is ill if they won't choose to stand up for themselves. Because you can't fix someone who doesn't want to be fixed, no matter how much you want to. I agree with that. And I feel like a lot of times as veterans, we we put these unrealistic expectations on our, on our spouses. One of the things that I've, I've even noticed a lot, I've done this and I'm embarrassed about it, but um, that I've even noticed a lot in the posts that I see on that uh, spouses of people with PTSD Facebook page um, is that, you know, a lot of these guys or girls, you know, these, these victims of post-traumatic stress, they put all of their happiness on the other person. And that's like the the silliest thing. If you think about it, it's the silliest thing you can do. You know, you're expecting perfection out of somebody else when you're not willing to offer any level of perfection yourself. And people are just imperfect. Like we're all imperfect. It's kind of like saying to your spouse, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm a car. I'm having some uh, some issues with my trans transmission. You know, or my brakes are aren't working exactly the way they used to. I'm struggling to stop and." 
and I'm worried you're great at the piano. Can you fix me? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> and then when they can't fix the brakes or whatever, they can't fix us. You know, we get all upset, like, Oh, what you don't love me or whatever, you know, like, Oh, you're the worst. I mean, anybody else would have at least tried or whatever. I mean, but you know, somebody suggests, Hey, why don't you just go to a mechanic and have them, you know, fix your stuff. Oh no, that's, that's wussy. I, I'd rather just, I'd rather just fix it myself. I mean, it's cause it's clearly gone so great so far, you know, like I, <laughs> my brakes kind of work. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, they, at least they still are still kind of slowing the vehicle down before it plows into another vehicle or whatever, you know, and kills everybody inside. Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, if I can put on my, my first sergeant hat again a little bit, you know, it's just, I take a lot of pride as a, a non-commissioned officer who has trained soldiers to be the most lethal thing that sets foot on any battlefield. I don't want them to be, to lose a battle. I don't want them to lose a war. I don't ever want them to lose a fight. Uh, some of that's beyond my control and I get that, but I train them because I know that the best antidote to fear and uncertainty is amazing training and a good plan. And I want to make sure that they have access to all of that, right? Why then would I come home and let, you know, having stood up to the Taliban, having stood up in every single firefight and just, you know, done my absolute best to just really stick it to the enemy and, and give them one hell of a fight any, any place they ever met me on any battlefield. And then I come home and post-traumatic stress is what kicks my ass. Post-traumatic stress is what finally does me in and has me put a gun in my mouth. You know, like, I'm sorry, I know this is very crass terminology, but I mean, how, you know, I train my soldiers to fight. I want them to fight with whatever resources they have available. If it's a sharp stick or a 50 cal or artillery, I want them to be able to use all of it to fight. So why do we turn away from the, all these resources that we have that are given to us to fight? We have resources, we have counselors, we have opportunities. I mean, yet, you know, we just, we get into this place of discomfort and we stop fighting and we just expect everyone else to fight for us. Um, and, you know, I feel like it's, it's really our responsibility. I know that kind of in the media, you know, we're a little bit coddled. They give us this, this pass, this out, you know, and, and I'll, I'll be honest. I, I myself many times throughout the struggles that I've had in my marriage have wanted to take just negative aspects of my character, you know, or for example, and this is again, embarrassing. I'm going to, I'm going to attack myself a little bit. Um, you know, like my wife found pornography on my computer and you know, the conversation worked toward, you know, maybe this, maybe this has to do with post-traumatic stress. She almost handed me the out and it was so tempting to be like, oh yeah, this is a totally embarrassing thing, but I can just file it under post-traumatic stress and then I can just not have to deal with it. You know, <laughs> I could just let it, oh, PTSD. Yeah. I, I, I have this porn addiction because of, of post-traumatic stress. Um, and that's, that's so weak. Um, no, that was, that was a flaw in my character. And that was something that I needed to, to work on amongst many things, but it was something that I needed to work on for my wife to feel comfortable in our marriage. You know, whether a lot of people will, you know, agree or disagree about pornography and its relationship to marriage or its 
beneficial or detrimental effects. In our case, it was detrimental and it needed to go. And eventually I was able to overcome the temptation to sweep the negative aspects of my character under the PTSD rug and forget about them because it was some neutral third party I could blame it on besides owning up to it myself. And I feel like sometimes it's tempting to do that for, for those of us that are struggling with it. There are some things that we just can't control. There are emotional and, and mental things that we can't control from time to time as, as they're happening from post-traumatic stress. Um, we can learn to, to work around them, to control them. But there's a lot of things that we just definitely need to work on about ourselves. And it's just not enough to just blame it on something. I mean, think about it like this. You know, you're in an airplane. You're a pilot. You've flown thousands of missions. You know, you're, you've done thousands of flights. Um, your, your life and the life of everybody in that airplane is, is in your hands every time your, those wheels lift off that runway. Do you just hand the controls to the five-year-old kid in the front seat because he wants to learn how to fly a plane that day or because you feel like, or, you know, to somebody else <laughs> expecting them to fly the plane for you, you know, like, um, no, I mean, that's, that's crazy. You, you, your happiness is something that you get in the giving. Your happiness is something that you choose, that you build. It's a choice. Um, and, you know, so often we just try to expect our spouse or our significant other to make us happy, to do all the things that they need to do to make us happy, to work around our post-traumatic stress and everything. And we're just setting them up to fail. And all we're doing is, like I said before, pre, you know, it's just premeditated resentment. We're just, we're, we're saying, hey, I, I want you to make me happy. And I'm going to, I'm going to put up one hell of a fight because I just don't want to be happy. I mean, I do, but I don't want to have to put in the work myself. I want you to do it for me. You know, I mean, th this obviously sounds preposterous and ridiculous, but yet it's what, kind of what we're doing. We're like, Hey, make me happy. Oh, you can't. Well, you're just an awful person then, you know, or maybe I'm just doomed from happiness and I should give up. It's like, no, no, we, uh, we find happiness in, in giving happiness to others. You know, we, we, we find happiness in putting up a fight against post-traumatic stress. We find happiness in finding the resources and everything. And I know this, there's this other massive stigma and I know it chased me around a little bit. If I admit that I'm struggling, if I admit that I'm having suicidal ideations, if I admit that I don't have it all together and that my marriage is falling apart and I go and I seek counseling, they're going to put it down on paper. I'm going to look like a liability. It's going to prevent me from, you know, promoting or, you know, advancing in my career in the military, it's going to destroy my military career and then I'll have nothing. And that's our fear. But I'm telling you from the perspective of somebody that's done it, it is never, it has never held me back. And now that I'm in this position of, of leadership, you know, I, I made first sergeant, I'm on the promotion list to make sergeant major. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn because, you know, my, my favorite rank was staff sergeant. That was the best one of all. And now it's all a labor of love. I don't get to do anything fun. I do paperwork and I chase people around for flu shots now. But the thing is, is I've been able to progress through all of this without any issues, despite having had to seek help to overcome my post-traumatic issues with post-traumatic stress and suicidal ideations. I got the help I needed. It made me stronger, but more importantly than that, it made me a better husband and it made me a better leader because I learned how to communicate what I'm feeling 
how to respect what other people are feeling, how to empathize a little bit more. And I've been able to take all of the culmination of everything that I learned from leadership in the military, combine that with the things that I learned through, you know, marriage counseling or um, talking to counselors through military one source. You know, not all of it was gold. I mean, there was a lot of bullshit in there, but I was able to grab the things out of every one of these resources that helped me. And then I was able to use those to help other people, which if that sounds like anything to you, to me, that sounds like great leadership, <laughs> learning and then teaching. Um, it's made me a more empathetic leader and it's probably helped me with leaps and bounds, get into positions of leadership. And when I look at those soldiers that I want to promote, I'm looking for the ones who aren't afraid to admit that they have some weaknesses in the effort to get stronger. I mean, do you want to take that soldier into battle that sits in the back of the room and pretends like he knows how to use the radio and call for fire because he's embarrassed to admit that he doesn't know that officer or junior officer that pretends like he knows everything and then just falls apart in the middle of the firefight? Or do you want to go with the guy that sits in that classroom and raises his hand and says, you know what? I don't know how to call for fire. I don't know how to call a nine line. Can you explain that to me one more time? I know I look stupid, but I'm not going to look stupid when my buddy's bleeding out on the ground. And I can remember all of this because I had the courage to ask. I, I feel it's the same way, you know, with, with soldiers that are willing to step forward and say, Hey, I'm struggling. I need to take a knee. Um, my marriage is falling apart. Things are bad. Do you know any resources, anything that can help me? You betcha, buddy. I'll plug you in with everything that I've got. And this is everything that I've learned because I've been through it too. I want you to get strong because I need you strong. And then when you're out there and things are falling apart and you see your soldiers struggling with it and you start seeing the signs of post-traumatic stress with them, like I started to see on my second tour after learning lessons from my first tour about post-traumatic stress, healthier ways to process that emotion. I mean, those are exactly the type of leadership skills you want to have in the military or just in life as a parent, as, as a boss, as a friend, as somebody that's dating, if you're single. I mean, can you imagine, you know, how, how sexy it is to somebody of the opposite sex that you're an emotionally stable person that can help them when things are hard for them? Why wouldn't you want to do this? There's nothing shameful about getting stronger. There's nothing shameful about getting smarter. There's nothing shameful about improving yourself in any, in any way. Sorry, I didn't mean to soapbox, but <laughs> I, I just feel like sometimes we just, we, we take all of our happiness and we put it in the hands of the most imperfect things and things that we can't control when it's our job, our, our happiness is our job. And we need to find, you know, we need to find that happiness through providing that happiness for the members of our family. And we can do that despite post-traumatic stress. It's possible. You just got to focus on the positive things. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of activities that Krista talks about, you know, that keep you in the prefrontal cortex and different things like that, that just help you kind of focus more on processing the positive emotions than the negative ones until your mind, you know, like we say in the military, you train until you get it right. And then you keep training until you can't get it wrong. Um, you know, it's the same thing. You, you train your mind to process positive emotion until you can process positive emotion. And then you keep training your mind to process positive emotion until you struggle to feel the depression and the negative, you know, the anxiety and all of that stuff. I don't know if that's achievable with post-traumatic stress. That might be a pipe dream, but 
you can definitely get out on the side of it where your marriage doesn't have to fall apart and where you can live a life with post-traumatic stress where it has its appropriate place in just keeping you alive and keeping you happy and keeping you engaged with your family. Sorry. The most important takeaway here is you are not alone. There are a lot of people out here going through the same thing that you are going through. And they are all usually, there's a ton of resources where you can talk to them, where they're available to you. There's a ton of nonprofit organizations. It's amazing to me. And I'm in Conroe, Texas, and we are a very, very uh, positive military and police environment here. So we have a tremendous number of nonprofit organizations that help people with resources. If you can't find resources, they are organizations that do nothing but find resources. Like they literally just hook you up with 10 other people. So there, there are resources everywhere. You just have to want to look for them. And most of them are free for you. Most of them are free for military personnel who are struggling. So even if you're not going through the VA, because you have whatever feelings you might have about that, or you're on a wait list and you can't get an appointment for three months or six months. I know some areas are really difficult. It's, it's a lot better here than some of the stories I'm hearing, but there are other things you can do while you're waiting for your therapy appointment with the VA or while you're waiting for even just to be analyzed by the VA to determine what's going on with you. If you are not feeling happy, if you're struggling, there are resources out there that don't necessarily mean you have post-traumatic stress disorder. You might just be having some symptoms of post-traumatic stress and you can deal with those on your, on your own through these small nonprofit organizations and you'll be on top of it. And they will teach you resiliency practices. They will teach you things that are useful before the problem even happens. So if you're thinking about going in the military or joining the police department or becoming a firefighter, go take some resiliency training, go take some classes on post-traumatic stress, know what to look for, know how to get it ahead of time, know how to keep it from affecting you. Because if you know how to process trauma in a better way than what you had when you went in, it's not going to hit you. You're not going to have the disordered part of it afterwards. If you can actually address it and process it at the time that it occurs and you can tell your story and you can release those emotions and you can keep your feet grounded in the reality of what that means to you you can completely avoid this altogether some people not altogether but for the most part you can be better prepared so it's not just for extreme cases it's not just for the people who are alcoholics now who have tried to commit suicide or who are beating their wives. It's literally, if you feel unhappy, if you know there's more to life than what you're experiencing right now, if you have ever said, I wish I'm, I wish I was still the person that I was before. If you feel disconnected from that person, ask for help because if you get help now in 20 years, when the post-traumatic stress actually like hits you in the face, because it can do that, you'll already have it knocked out. You'll already know what to do. You'll already know how to be safe and healthy. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Help is out there for you. And you can still be extremely successful. Just look at Jesse. 
<laughs> is anyone gonna say this guy is weak? Really? I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I always I always love to be underestimated. That's the best, that's the best way to be. Um, but I also I also feel kind of adding to that, you know, there's there's so many ways. I think post-traumatic stress is such a a broad spectrum. Um, you know, it can be anything from you know, things that can be addressed through just the choices that you make, um, you know, because I've I've heard it said correctly, you know, there's so many of us that are willing to die for our families, right? And that's a noble and courageous thing. But how many of us are willing to live for them? You know, it's like, yeah, I'd totally die for you, babe. But you want me to do the dishes? Screw that. You know, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> seriously, you know, it's like it's a labor of love kind of a thing. You know, it's like. It's, it is noble to be willing to die for your family, but man, it's, it's so much more impressive to have the courage to live for them by, you know, through a little bit of sacrifice here and there and, and, and trying to, to build those relationships. Um, you know, I know that, I know that alcohol is a big part of a lot of people's lives. I just know that, you know, for, for, for me and for many people that I've worked with, it is such an inhibitor to finding happiness, especially if you're dealing with post-traumatic stress because it's a depressant and it just, it, it will work so harshly against you. And I know it's not something that's easy to, to, to combat, but you know, like for me, the journey for me really where I learned the most about myself and post-traumatic stress actually was, was through marriage counseling because my, my struggle was just trying to figure out a way to talk about it. So the Gottman Institute stuff talking about how, to avoid defensiveness and resentment and all of these things and arguments and coming up with strategies with my wife about what we do when we start to boil over and, you know, talking about how, talking about our fights before we have them, you know, and, and building healthy strategies for that. Like when I start getting heated, she tells me to go hit the gym or go for a run and come back. And, and then I come back apologetic and ready to, you know, to talk a little bit more and to, to get through it and work toward a solution instead of just us slinging venom at each other and then walking out, hating each other. Um, you know, for somebody else, it might just be trying to overcome alcohol as a necessary step to kind of regaining control over how they feel and the happiness that they experience in life. For another person, it could be, you know, something related to traumatic brain injury, you know, like they got, they got, rattled so hard by some explosions over there that, you know, like the, the screws kind of rattled loose a little bit. I know that's kind of a horrible way to talk about it, but you know, like I've, I've seen a lot of people that took injuries and different things like that. And um, the effects of post-traumatic stress that they were experiencing were really related to chemical imbalances and things they couldn't even control if they wanted to, but there were treatments for that. They just had to find the courage to go and ask. And then they were able to, you know, find those treatments to kind of, help the body compensate for the imbalances to where they could kind of get back to this level of normalcy to where they could, you know, continue to work on it through their decision-making and through resiliency activities and so on. So, you know, I know that no two answers are exactly the same, but one thing that is constant is this willingness to take control of it yourself, not to, not to try to pawn, pawn it off on anybody, help, let people help you but take individual accountability of your happiness and the happiness of your family and make that a priority over embarrassment, over what other people might think, over everything. Make sure your happiness and the happiness and the welfare of your family is the most important thing. 
And then you don't have to worry about something as simple as post-traumatic stress being the thing that can destroy you on the battlefield, despite any other enemy that you've been trained to defeat <laughs> or any other obstacle that you've been trained to overcome as a law enforcement person or uh, as somebody that works in, in any kind of public service, um, you know, as nurses or anything else. You know, it's, it's a choice. It really is a choice. And it's once you make that choice, the fun stuff begins and it's, it's a little difficult, but it's so worth it. Just like going to the gym, you don't get strong by looking at the weights and not touching them <laughs> or understanding how weightlifting works, but never trying it. You have to get in there and you have to, you have to try and it's going to look weird at first. It's going to be embarrassing. You might not know how to lift properly. Somebody might have to give you some advice. You might have to talk to a physical therapist that'll kind of show you how to work out but eventually you'll see the results and you only see the results by having the courage to get in there and to try and to do it. Consistency. Yeah. So important. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us tonight. I think everything that you've said has been extraordinarily valuable. I think you are a great resources for our men and women out there who especially just need to know that even people in positions of authority understand that they can talk to you, that it's okay to ask for help. They're not going to lose their job. They're not going to lose their rank. They're not going to be made fun of. So you are a perfect example. Is there anything that you want to just say in closing? Yeah, just one thing kind of related to what you just said. And you might run into people that are that way. They, they don't treat it with the appropriate level of respect. I will tell you this. Um, before my mom passed away, one thing that she insisted on teaching me throughout my life is that if I ever found myself in darkness, waiting for somebody to turn on the light, to stop waiting and to be the light. You will experience all kinds of leaders for better or for worse. Some will be great leaders. Some will not be great leaders. I've had plenty of leaders that sucked and they handled these situations horribly. And it taught me that I didn't want to be that kind of leader. So my thing is, is if you feel like the leadership or the people around you aren't helping people like you become the person that helps people like you. If they're not doing it and you realize that there's a need, then you, that calling has just found you. You've got to step up and lead and don't be afraid to do it because you will help yourself so much in helping others and you'll get so much self-confidence from it also. So if you, if you don't find the resources, be the resources. If you don't find the support, be the support as much as you can. And that's the last thing I would challenge. You know, uh, I guess it's, it's an old adage, like my dad said, okay, this is one more thing. <laughs> um, the first level of success is getting up one more time than you fall. You know, you get knocked down, you got to get up one more time. The next level of success is staying up as long as you can. The third level of success is knocking other people down. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the third level of success is lifting up other people, but the highest level of success I feel like we can attain in our fight against post-traumatic stress or in any aspect of our lives is what Christ was talking about in the scriptures. And I know this is biblical and everything, but truth is truth, regardless of the source. Uh, I think it speaks for itself. No greater love hath any man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's that verse of scripture isn't talking about dying for something. It's talking about living for it, but it's talking about living selflessly for it.
um, you know, the ultimate level of success we can have with our families is living for them in the most selfless ways that we possibly can. And you'll be anywhere on that spectrum from just getting up one more time than you fall to trying to stay up as long as you can to lifting others to living as selflessly as you can until you screw up and get knocked back down again. You're going to be up and down on that. As long as you're always trying to do one of those things, getting up one more time, staying up, lifting others, or just trying to live for the welfare of others, to lift others, then uh, then you're going to be okay. You're going to make it one way or another, even if it's just getting up one more time than you fall. I'm so grateful that we connected and that I got you in my life and on my podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody, we are going to close out for the night. Thank you for joining us, and you will see us again on Thursday.